Our, our sermon series continues this morning. Hereafter is the name of the, the message, or the series. What the Bible says about life after death and what lies ahead. We have uh, today and then two more Sundays to go in this series. Last week, we talked about the resurrection of the dead that will happen when Jesus returns. This is the great Christian hope that, uh, that when he comes back, the dead in Christ will rise. We will all join to meet him, and he will reign on the earth forever, and we will be embodied again. Uh, if you missed that uh, message, you can go back and check it out on YouTube or on the podcast, because we were podcasting the sermons again, like we used to do back in the olden days. Remember that time before COVID? Seems like it was ages ago. Uh, today, we're going to uh, talk about the future judgment of the world. This is a heavy topic, so let's pray. We need the Lord's help with this one. Father God, as we join together now under the authority of your word, we ask God for you to open our minds and our hearts to receive what it is that you have for us. Help me, Lord, for this difficult task as well. In Jesus' name, amen. I, I think... I'm probably safe in assuming that most of you, if not all of you, have, that your, your life has been touched by the effects of cancer, whether that's you yourself or a loved one or a friend. Cancer seems to be everywhere. Sometimes the cancer can be found early enough that it hasn't spread throughout the body, and it can literally be cut out of the body, surgically removed, uh, and, and it's not pretty. It's surgery, but it sure is a good thing, and I'm sure if any of you have had that experience, and I know that some of you have, you're very grateful to be cancer-free, to have been able to have had that surgery, uh, despite the fact that it was probably a bit of a painful process. You'll take the surgery if it means the cancer is gone, destroyed. And I think that is a good analogy for the future judgment. This talk about judgment and of hell that we're going to talk about, it's uncomfortable. We don't like it. We'd be happy to not be thinking about it. Uh, and I think that is partly because we live in a culture of acceptance and affirmation, and the idea of anyone judging anyone else is very inappropriate, right? That's just wrong. We shouldn't judge anybody. Well, we'll get to that in a bit. We really shouldn't, but God is going to. And the Word of God does describe a judgment to come. God will judge the world. And in one sense, it won't be pretty. It will be a painful process, like all of creation going under a surgical knife. But the purpose of that procedure is so absolutely necessary. The purpose is to cut out, eliminate, eradicate all trace of the cancer of sin, the cancer of evil and of violence and abuse and hatred and suffering and inequality and shame and injustice in our world. The judgment is the surgery of the end times. And if we long for Eden to be restored, which is what our hearts long for, the new heavens and the new earth, a, a place of sinless perfection, then the cancer has got to go. 
Jesus used his own analogy, that of a farmer who pulls weeds out of the field. And so today's message I've titled, Wheat and Weeds, The Judgment of the World. I had a different title originally. In fact, I had an original title, a different title before that. And I've, I've, as it's come together, it, it keeps changing. Uh, but today the title is Wheat and Weeds. Before we get to our main text, which will be in the Gospel of Matthew, um, I want to just look at a whole bunch of scriptures, kind of rapid fire. Uh, as we've done with some of these other topics that we've discussed over the course of this series, we will see that the, these are things that we find all throughout the Bible. These are huge, major topics. It's not just some little thing, obscure idea in a couple of verses. These are major uh, ideas in, in the, the Bible. So if we're going to look, let's look just at the New Testament uh, without even going to the Old Testament, which does have references to the, to the future judgment. Uh, but let's just start, let's just do the New Testament, a quick scan of some of the, the references that we see. Uh, Jesus himself uh, said, the Father has given the Son absolute authority to judge. This is John chapter 5. He has given him authority to judge everyone because he is the Son of Man. In John 12, Jesus said, but all who reject me and my message will be judged on the day of judgment by the truth I have spoken. Matthew 11, twice Jesus talks about judgment day. Matthew 25, this is a very important text in terms of the judgment. He says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, that he will sit upon his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered in his presence and he will separate the people as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep at his right hand and his goats at the left. And he's talking about the judgment. We see the Apostle Paul also uh, talking about the future judgment. In Acts 17, Paul is preaching, and he says, For he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed. That's Jesus. And he proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. In Romans 2, Paul also writes, Because you are stubborn and refuse to turn from your sin, you are storing up terrible punishment for yourself. For a day of anger is coming when God's righteous Judgment will be revealed. The author of Hebrews, the unknown author of Hebrews, uh, put it very succinctly. Each person is destined to die once, and after that comes judgment. The apostle Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 3, said, And by the same word, the present heavens and earth have been stored up for fire. They are being kept for the day of judgment, when ungodly people will be destroyed. In Acts chapter 10, Paul, uh, Peter's preaching, and he says, he, meaning Jesus, is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. So you get a sense. This is a, this is a major theme. But I want to focus this morning on a, a specific passage from Matthew 13, the words of Jesus in a parable. And this will form the basis this morning of our conversation around the judgment that is to come. So Matthew 13 is where we're going, uh, starting at verse 24. These are the words of Jesus, and I'm reading from the English Standard Version. If you have a Bible, you can turn there, or a Bible app, you can turn there. The, the text actually will not be on the screen, so I do encourage you to, to follow along with us. There are Bibles down in front of you as well in the seats. Not the English Standard Version, but something close to that. All right, give you a second, Matthew 13, starting at verse 24. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man 
who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds also appeared. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Well, then do you want us to go out and and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. And then if we go down to verse 36. Then he, that's Jesus, left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came with him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. And he answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace." In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. He who has ears, let him hear. All right, let's unpack this a little bit. Starting at verse 37, Jesus, he begins to explain this parable to his disciples. And he said, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man, meaning himself. Son of man is a title that Jesus used for himself. In this parable, Jesus represents the farmer or the master. And we know clearly from all over the New Testament as well that Jesus is the judge when it comes to the judgment. Now, all of this, I don't know about you, but you read these things and it kind of weighs heavy on your heart. That's what it feels like for me. And it, and it feels like not very good news sometimes. It's like, oh, this doesn't sound very good. <laughs> this is supposed to be part of the gospel, right? The gospel's good news. How is this good news? But I think it's really good news that Jesus is the judge <laughs> because I can't think of anyone more well-suited for the task. N.T. Wright wrote a really great book called um, Surprised by Hope, which talks about a lot of the same things we've been talking about uh, this, uh, this series. And he says this, he says, the judgment is good news in part because the future judge is not a hard-hearted, arrogant, or vengeful tyrant, but rather the man of sorrows who was acquainted with grief, the Jesus who loved sinners and died for them, the Messiah who took the world's judgment upon himself on the cross. That's the judge. Has anyone seen the movie Gladiator? It came out a number of years ago, 20 years ago or something. Yeah, right? It's one of those classic movies, Ridley Scott movie. And uh, in, that, in that film, uh, the Caesar, he, he gets to decide people's fate with his thumb, you know? He does this. So a gladiator will fight, and if he survives, 
then, uh, then the Caesar gets to decide, does, are we now going to execute the gladiator or are we going to let him live? If it's a thumbs up, he gets to live. If it's a thumbs down, then we execute him. And so there's all these intense scenes where the fist goes out and everyone in the crowd is all waiting and they're cheering and they're trying to persuade the emperor and then, and then it's this or then it's this. And it's this very intense moment. Um, and and, and the, the fate of these gladiators is totally dependent on the whim of uh, an easily swayed and unstable and cruel dictator. But that's not at all what this judgment in the future will be. In the end, we are in the hands of Jesus, the good shepherd. There is no one more fair, no one more loving, no one more just than Jesus. And we can trust that he will make the right call when it comes to the judgment. This is also a reminder as we read this in this parable that if Jesus is the judge, we are not. In this parable, the servants say to the master, hey, master, do you want us to go out and pull those weeds that we see growing? And the master says, no, I don't want you to do that because you'll probably make a mistake. (laughs) He's like, you guys won't be able to tell the difference between the weeds and the wheat. And that may be because the, there were certain weeds that grew, and I guess still do, I don't know, we should ask the farmers over here um, uh, about this, but apparently that kind of, when they're early, in early stages, uh, they look like the wheat, and it's not until they grow, am I, am I on the right track here, Ian? Thank you. That, uh, it's not until they grow more and mature that you can tell the difference. And so uh, these, these servants would get it wrong, probably, and they'd pull up the good, weeds, uh, the good wheat along with the weeds and say, no, don't do it. Don't do that. Um, And that's kind of, I think, an illustration of the fact that we, as mere human beings, have a very limited perspective uh, as to what's really going on in people's lives and their hearts. And Jesus tells us not to judge, and I think for that reason, uh, because we are not in a position to judge or condemn people uh, because we have a limited perspective. Jesus knows the heart. We don't know the heart. So I'm thankful that it's not my job to decide who's in and who's out of the kingdom of God. I'm quite sure I would be wrong, and I would get it wrong. So it's a good reminder, I think, in general, to leave the judging up to God. Amen? Amen. Amen. Leave the judging up to God. That's his job. Okay, Jesus is the judge. Let's continue now. Uh, Verses 38 to 39. The field is the world. So Jesus is now kind of defining the terms here. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the close of the age. So, the sons of the kingdom versus the sons of the evil one. Jesus makes a distinction here. This is the reality. Some people are saved, some people belong to the kingdom of God and to the family of God, and some people do not. Do not be deceived by people who will tell you things like, all roads lead to God, or all roads lead to heaven, or we are all children of God in our own way. You will hear that from well-meaning people, but they are leading you astray, because the Bible clearly makes a distinction. There are people who trust in Jesus and are saved, and there are people who don't and are not. And Jesus calls them the sons of the kingdom versus the sons of the evil one. Those are the words of Jesus, sons of the kingdom and sons of the devil. 
Who is a son of the kingdom? A son of the kingdom is someone who has trusted in Christ as their Savior. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And to be saved is to be forgiven of your sins, to, be, to have your, your, your past erased, to have uh, your life redeemed for the glory of God, to be justified by the blood of Christ just as if I'd never sinned. It's this beautiful gift that God gives us. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul puts it this way. He says, you were once God's enemies. Yeah, you were once God's enemies. Before we are forgiven of our sins through faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible describes us as being at at enmity with God. We are enemies with Him. Separated from Him, Paul writes, by your evil thoughts and actions. Verse 22, yet now He has reconciled you to Himself through the death of Jesus Christ in His physical body. As a result... He has brought you into his own presence, and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. We will stand before him without a single fault because, not because of our righteousness, but because of the righteousness of Jesus. So we were once God's enemies, but now we are purified and we are God's children. Some terminology in the New Testament uses the word adoption. In Romans 8, 15, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Galatians 3, 26, you are all children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And as Jesus says, sons of the kingdom. The sons of the kingdom are the ones who have been given the free gift of eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. Alternatively, who is a son of the evil one. Simply, it is those who have not accepted Jesus. Those who have not accepted Jesus. In John chapter 3, we're in the same area where Jesus says that for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. This verse that we love so much, a couple verses later in verse 18, it says, whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. So apart from Jesus, we stand condemned already. So with Jesus, we will stand before him without a single fault. But if we don't have Jesus as our Savior, we stand condemned already. This is what the New Testament has to say. These are the words of Jesus. Let's continue. The harvest. The harvest is the close of the age. Some translations, like the King James, say the end of the world. That's not a good translation. It's not the end of the world. It is the end of the world as we know it, as, uh, what do you call that band from? Yeah, R.E.M. originally, and then we got our Newfoundland version. Great Big C. It's the end of the world as we know it. A good song. I like Great Big C's version better, to be honest. Um, Anyway. Um, end of the world as we know it, because we know the world is not going to end. The scripture says the world is going to continue, and we believe that that is the thrust of what scripture is trying to say to us. But it is the close of the age. That's a better translation, as it says in the version we read this morning. That moment when Jesus returns, when everyone is resurrected, and God remakes our world, and we enter into the new era of time. So, verses, let's continue, verses 40 to 42. So, what's going to happen at the judgment? So, Jesus has now defined the terms And this is what it says, just verse 40, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels 
and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. The judging is like a sorting, you might say. There's really not all that much judging that has to take place at the judgment because the verdict is already decided, dependent upon what you do in this life in terms of your faith in Christ. But it's more of a sorting that takes place. It's the identification of the public identification of the weeds. It's the locating of the cancer to root it out. In Matthew 25, Jesus, as we we referenced that earlier, he refers to it as a separation of sheep and goats. One of the most detailed passages on the judgment is found in Revelation 20, uh, which is sometimes referred to as the, the great white throne judgment. This is John, part of John's apocalyptic vision of the future judgment. And in, in Revelation 20, 11 to 15, this is what it says. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Who's seated on the great white throne? Jesus, that's right. Good. Sunday school answer, you got it right? <laughs> um, the answer is usually Jesus, just for future reference. Okay. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, that's Jesus, from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades... Remember Hades? We've been talking about that in a few sermons back. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each of them, according to what they had done. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. In this vision of John... Those who were cast away, those who, were, uh, those who were cast into the lake of fire are those whose names were not written in the Lamb's book of life. And I believe that when you believe in Jesus through faith, your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Let's continue back now to Matthew 13. So we're starting to get a picture of this now, I think, quite clearly what's happening. Matthew 13, let's... Read verse 41 again. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. Now, I wanted to read that again because I think we can miss that if we're not careful. That He didn't just say that he's going to uh, gather out of his kingdom all lawbreakers or all sinners, but also all causes of sin. This is really important. This is really important. Uh, people have asked me before, they say, well, what if, what if uh, we get into the new heaven and the new earth, and it's like the restored Garden of Eden, and it's all wonderful, but then what if someone sins again? What if we repeat it again? What if they take uh, the apple again, right, faster, and uh, here we go again, and then we have to do it all over again? I think this verse kind of answers that question, right? Because all causes of sin are gone. There's no chance of history repeating itself. Because the future heaven 
this, this act of judgment is, is about a total and complete purification of the world. It's the elimination of every injustice and every motive behind every injustice. It's the elimination of uh, child abuse, uh, but not just child abuse, even the sickness of the human heart that leads to it. It's the elimination of human trafficking, but not only that, even the lust is gone. It's the elimination of violence, but not only violence, all manner of hatred within us. It's the elimination of inequality and poverty, but not only that, greed itself will be gone. It's the eradication of all evil and all potential evil. The sinful nature in us is gone. It's the eradication of the devil and his demons, gone. There will be no opportunity for us to choose something other than God's perfect will. You know, we look back at the Garden of Eden and we say, well, why did God ever plant that other tree that they could, so they had the potential to sin? That was so that they would have the freedom to choose God out of love and not as robots, you know, that God wanted us to have free choice. But in the new heaven, our love for God is a choice we've already made. We made it in this life. We don't need to make it again. We've made it. And now we will live in that choice for eternity. Amen. <laughs> yeah. In the end, you know, everyone gets what they want. That's one way of thinking about it. Which takes us to the hardest part of this whole conversation. And that is about hell itself. Verse 42. So God will root out, Jesus will root out all causes of sin and all sinners and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Nobody wants to talk about this part. But this is part of the plan. If you remember our diagram, it's now, this is now the complete picture. Uh, and uh, we won't go over all this again, but if, you, if you've been with us on this journey, uh, you will remember some of these things we've talked about along the way. And in the end, we have sin, all causes of sin, and all sinners being cast into hell. The, the word uh, for hell in the Greek is Gehenna, which comes from the Hebrew Gehinnom, which is the Valley of Hinnom. That's literally what it means. And what is that? Well, the Valley of Hinnom is a valley to the west of Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem. Uh, for at different times throughout history, it had been a site of child sacrifice to pagan gods. Very, very dark place. And then uh, in the time of Jesus, it had become a garbage dump. <clears throat> and so it was appropriate, I think, that this is the terminology, this is the metaphor, the image that, um, that the Bible would use to talk about this future reality. It's appropriate as the idea of the place where things would be discarded in the end. There's also imagery in the scripture, uh, such as Lake of Fire, which we read in Revelation 20. There's also references to this place being referred to as outer darkness, which makes you wonder about the, the literalness of some of these ideas, right? How can it be a lake of fire and also outer darkness, right? Fire produces light, darkness is dark. So it makes you, you wonder, I'm not sure how literal to take some of that terminology. Um, it's, it's representing an idea, I think, personally, more than describing literal fire. Um, but we just really, we don't know exactly how literal to take it. 
In Revelation, as we read, it also refers to it as the second death. For me, that is perhaps the best way to think about it. As someone said one time, uh, I forget who said it, but they said, born once, die twice. So no, born, yeah, okay, let me say that again. Born twice, die once. Born once, die twice. Now what does that mean? (laughs) Born twice. If you're born twice, you will only die once. That is if you're born physically into this world, but you're also born again through faith in Jesus Christ. Again, John chapter 3, Jesus said you must be born again. And if you have that born again experience in this life, then you will die only once. You will have a physical death, but you will never face death after that again. At the resurrection, after the resurrection, you will live forever. But if you're only born once, if you have a physical birth into this world, but you never have a spiritual rebirth, then you will die twice. You will die physically in this world, and after the resurrection, when you are cast into hell, that will be the second death die twice. Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Matthew 10, 28. So, we know that hell is real. Hell is real, and hell is real bad. I had friends growing up in high school, they would say, I want to go to hell when I die because I want to party with Kurt Cobain and Jimi Hendrix. I say, you guys don't know what you're saying. You, it is not going to be a party. One thing we need to be cautious about, though, when we think about hell is not to assume that the image we have of it, have it, of it in our minds is all that accurate. We've been very influenced by medieval and Renaissance art, We've been very influenced by uh, Dante's Inferno. We've been very influenced by all kinds of depictions of hell in media, pop culture, and so on. And just like we may develop a somewhat fictional image of heaven in our minds, and not necessarily a biblical image, we can do the same thing with hell. We have to be careful of that. We always need to come back to Scripture and gain our best understanding of Scripture. And I actually had a whole bunch of more stuff in my message to talk about the nature of hell, but I had to cut it out because we would be here all afternoon. Um, So I'm hoping maybe this week, if I have time to record a a bonus podcast, which I do sometimes, to talk about some of the different views of hell. Because there are actually different ways that theologians over the years have processed uh, their understanding of hell. Going all the way back to the early church, there have been different views. Um, And the traditional view of hell that we have today in our minds of this eternal conscious torment that I think a lot of you would probably assume is what we're talking about when we talk about hell as this ongoing never-ending punishment and torture kind of situation, um, uh, only really became the popular view of the church uh, with St. Augustine in the, in the, before the year 500. Uh, there were other views before that, and there are other views out there as well. So, um, You might be interested to hear that podcast later this week. I hope to get that recorded, just so you understand. It's not necessarily just that traditional view that people have understood. Let's stay on course now with Matthew 13. So, let's recap. All causes of sin, all perpetrators of sin, everyone and everything that does not belong to the kingdom of God is thrown into the fiery furnace. And then what remains after that? Verse 43 Then, then the righteous 
will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. The image of eternity presented in Scripture is one that has no hint of evil left. I like how Paul put it in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 to 10. He said, God has now revealed to us his mysterious will regarding Christ, which is to fulfill his own good plan. He has a very good plan. And this is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. That's the good plan. The good plan, praise God, is that one day everything that exists will be to under the authority of Jesus Christ. Praise God. Something we haven't yet discussed. We're almost done. What will the experience of judgment be like for us believers in Jesus? What will that be like? One of the working titles that I originally had for this sermon was A Tale of Two Thrones. I think I said that last week. That's what the sermon was going to be called, but then I changed my mind. Um, why, why A Tale of Two Thrones? That's because the Bible doesn't just talk about the great white throne judgment. It also uses this other Greek term. The, the Greek word is bema. The bema. What is the bema seat? This is a different throne. The bema seat is a very different kind of throne. In Romans chapter 14, writing to Christians, Paul says, we will all stand, again, I think this is just Christians, we'll all stand before the judgment seat of God. That's literally, the judgment seat there is a different word than what we read often. It's, we will all stand before the Bema. Again, writing to Christians in Corinth, Paul says, for we must all appear before the Bema of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. We will all appear before the Bema of Christ. I have a picture here. You can put that up. This is uh, what uh, a Bema looked like. Uh, this, <clears throat> this is in Athens. And this is where the emperor or another high-ranking official would sit on an elevated platform on a throne, and they would judge the races, the Olympic races and, and events. And at the end of the ceremony, the winners of the races would come up to the Bema and receive their rewards. That's what the Bema was about. They would receive a laurel crown on their heads. And so when we read in the Bible, uh, you know, that we will, when we, you know, we, we run the race, we finish the race, and, and we will receive crowns that are imperishable. It's all using this imagery of these Olympic races. And the Bema seat. We will all stand before the Bema to receive our rewards for what we've done. That's the image. So, you know, the, um, the judgment for Christians, I think, will be, for the most part, a very positive experience. It will, uh, what you have done in your life, the good work you've done for the kingdom of God, uh, the difference that you've made, how you lived out your faith in action and in holiness, it will be reviewed and you will be rewarded to one degree or another as you enter into the new heaven and new earth forever and ever. And what will that new reality be like in eternity? What will heaven be like? 
Well, stay tuned, because that's coming the next two Sundays. It's a cliffhanger. What will we, next week, what will heaven be like? And then the last week, what will we do in heaven? We're just going to sit around and have a never-ending church service? I don't think so. All right, uh, let's wrap this up. Judgment is a topic we don't love to think about. We don't love to talk about it. Perhaps mostly because of our loved ones who don't know Jesus yet and are concerned for them. And that is a well-placed concern. We need to continue to pray for their salvation and do our part to point them and others to Jesus through our words and through our actions. And like we talked about at this conference, through our acts of, actions of justice as well. That's part of how we point people to Jesus. But we also need to remember uh, how truly good the judgment will be. It is the last necessary step in the process of God's great and beautiful project of setting the world right through Jesus. That is his plan. All throughout the Bible, and especially in the Psalms, this hope and expectation that one day God is going to enact his just judgment upon creation is seen over and over again as a cause for great celebration. For example, Psalm 98 says this, Let the sea resound and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord. Why? For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the people with equity. This is cause for celebration. Again, N.T. Wright says it this way, in a world of systematic injustice, violence, bullying, hatred, arrogance, and oppression, the thought that there might come a day when the wicked will firmly be put in their place and the poor and weak are given their due is the best news there can be. I agree. Worship team, will you come? Final point as they're coming. This work of setting the world right that God is going to do one day isn't just something we sit by and wait for. It's the work of God's kingdom here and now. And our prayer, as Jesus taught us to pray, is your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That prayer will be answered completely one day. Every bit of cancer in our world will be removed. But in the meantime, we seek it now. We seek it now. Build your kingdom here, O oh God. Your kingdom come, your will be done in Truro as it is in heaven, in Bible Hill as it is in heaven, in Salmon River as it is in heaven, in Nova Scotia as it is in heaven, Lord. Use us as agents of your kingdom today. That's our prayer. This was the theme of the Justice Summit this weekend. And it's so fitting that we're talking about this today as well. We want to see the church partner with the Holy Spirit to help bring freedom for the captives, mercy for the broken and the hopeless, driving out the darkness in our world as we shine the light of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen. Stand as we close with worship.